Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. It is indeed, and a great morning to you. Seven- Hour number two underway now, nine minutes past ten. Thanks for being with us on this free-for-all Friday, the third morning of the fourth month of the year of our Lord, 2020. Thanks again to former ICE Director Tom Homan. Joined us last uh, segment, or last half hour, rather, with some really great information about stopping the disease at the border, as well as other threats that come from uh, a, a porous southern border. And uh, we want to get back on uh, track here now, talking about specifically the spread of the Wuhan coronavirus and what is being done at the federal level, and then what guidance is being followed by local governments as well as uh, we continue to suffer and struggle under this, not just from the weight of the uh, um, number of deaths from the virus itself, but 700,000 people lost their jobs, according to the report this morning. 10 million jobless claims in the last two weeks, we found out yesterday. Uh, there's a very delicate balance that we're asking our government to work with here, and joining us now to discuss that very thing is the Deputy Secretary, of the Health and Human Services Department in the Trump administration, Eric Hargan, joining us now on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. Uh, thanks there, uh, very morning. much for joining us, Mr. Deputy Secretary. How are you? Good morning. Good. Good to be here. Very good. How are you this morning? I'm wonderful. Thank you. I pre- well as well as can as can be expected right now, and I'm sure you feel the same way. Uh, we're all yes. making the best of the situation as best we can. Um, before we get started, I just want you to know I asked my audience prior to you coming on over the last hour to send me messages with questions that they have. Uh, because we're going to talk about the federal response to COVID-19, and we're going to talk about what uh, you know the future holds for us here. Uh, and I figured you would like to answer questions directly from the people, and so I'm going to ask you a couple of my questions, but many of theirs, if that's all right. Sure. 
Let's start with this. Um, the the president, of course, has issued the guideline. Uh, he has extended what we were told was going to be a 15-day flatten-the-curve window to now we're going to have to do it another 30 days. Uh, and that's the guideline. It's not a federal quarantine, but it's just a guideline. And 37 right. states have some sort of stay-at-home protective orders in place, kind of following the president's guideline. And this runs until the end of the month. My question to you is, can you tell us, what we are looking for come April 30th, come May 1st, to say, okay, that's over. What conditions have to be in place for us to say, now we can start putting people back uh, into their jobs and start opening doors again? Well, it's it's not just something that we're going to look at on April 30th. Uh, what we're looking at is, is something that we're going to be looking at throughout the month to see exactly how this outbreak is developing. So what you have to do, you've seen the president's sort of goal one is to protect the lives and the safety of Americans uh, in the middle of this uh, viral outbreak. Uh, and also we are looking very strongly at the economic impacts of it. As he said, that's that's the goal uh, number two is to look at the, the economic impacts of this as we go through this. You've seen that there are some basic things that have been adopted. As you point out, the majority of the states have, have gone very strongly in this direction, which is you know, things like limiting unnecessary travel, basic personal hygiene, like um, like washing your hands thoroughly and making sure that you do social distancing. These are things that you've heard kind of pretty relentlessly uh, for the past uh, weeks and months. Uh, but uh, what are we going to be looking at? There's a number of factors dealing with how much the virus is spreading, what the impacts are, what the impacts are. Is, are we seeing these kind of practices taking hold? and what the impacts of them are going to be. We've seen this internationally, and we've seen it domestically now as well, which is where these uh, these basics have been being followed by the population. We're seeing the slowing and stopping of the spread of this disease, the now famous flattening of the curve of the, of the disease. Now, while we're seeing and we're going to see, as the president said very clearly, we're going, we're going to have a, a tough couple of weeks at least on seeing the effects of, of uh, the past, essentially, of places where uh, the hot spots that we're seeing still rising numbers of cases, rising numbers of mortality uh, in those areas. We have to watch those and watch where we're seeing rising new hot spots nationally, places where we're seeing, still seeing rising numbers of cases in a very strong way. Uh, but balancing that, you know, obviously our role at HHS is to give the president the best medical and scientific advice we can uh, with regard to the disease. But he obviously has the responsibility for balancing at the federal level all of the things that he has to look at, both the health and scientific side that we bring him, but also the economic impacts and the social impacts of the various lockdowns. Ultimately, right. of course, these decisions are the governor's decisions, the mayor's decisions, the local decisions. This is a locally executed, state-managed, but federally supported uh, approach, a whole-of-America approach that we have right. uh, here. And, as we're, as we're and, I, and I think uh, I think most of the governors and most of the city managers and, and, and so on and so forth who are enacting these types of uh, orders are indeed following federal guidance on this, which is why it matters so much. We're talking to the Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services. Now, uh, what I want to ask now is, and this is one of the first questions I got from listeners who, um, when they found out you were coming on, is about the masks. You know, we, we are counting on President Trump and we're counting on Vice President Pence, who's leading the task force, to give us the right answers. And they're relying on medical uh, science. And they're listening to Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, and they're listening to uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Adams and, and Surgeon General and all these wonderful epidemiologists and other experts in this. 
in March, the message was, no, don't wear masks. You don't need masks. The only people who need to wear masks are the people who are symptomatic. So the ones uh, who are actually, who may actually have the disease, the masks will contain it. Um, if you are just a normal person and you're not symptomatic, no, don't wear masks. Now we flip the calendar to April and we're being told, cover your faces, cover your faces. Now you can just be within talking distance of somebody. They don't have to sneeze or cough on you, but just their breath can come into your breath, your mouth and, and you can become infected. What I want to know is, is how do we trust the medical professionals when there is such a hugely divergent message being sent, sent on, the, on the matter of masks from last month to this, this month? Yeah, I think that where the, probably where the difference that, that has been seen is that in the emerging data that has been seen in this, that, that face masks, those kind of surgical masks, don't provide that the, I think still the consensus for the public health community is that they don't provide much benefit to a healthy wearer. What it does is that if you put it onto a, a person who is sick, they cover their face, they don't cough, up, they don't cough, it's a respiratory illness, it's primarily transmitted that way, but that doesn't transmit to, uh, that, that's the benefit for that. They don't transmit this to somebody else by coughing on them. And I think that they've been fairly consistent on that. The emerging data suggests that facial coverings may prevent asymptomatic disease transmission to others. In other words, to the extent that this that this disease transmits by somebody who doesn't have symptoms, that that can be helpful. That is where the data and the science is going now as we get more and more data about uh, what we should emphasize is a, as we call it, a novel coronavirus. It is a new virus. It has characteristics that are different from viruses, even ones that are similar, than have come before. So, as so, the so is, is the in, president going to then issue, and I apologize, I just want to get more questions in. Oh no. Is the president going to issue that guidance or order, um, essentially, if you're going to be in public, um, you know, for the emergency runs that you have to make for groceries, pharmacy, et cetera, if you're going to be in public, wear a mask. Is he going to make that order today? I, I, I'm, I'm not going to anticipate what the president's going to say specifically. I will say that a couple of days ago, you may have seen he said he doesn't see what harm it can do. Okay, I would say that this is, uh, in as many ways, the right to tie, it, the right to try president. Uh, he, in terms of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, in terms of the right to try act, where he says, you know, people should be empowered to, act, to get access themselves for what they want to do. He, he mentioned things like other things, like even scarves, may have some assistance there. So I will just say reiterate what the president said. Mm-hmm. He said he doesn't see what the harm could be of people doing this, but with regard to an official pronouncement based on what the public health people and the scientists are saying, I would say that's more matter going to be we'll have to wait and see uh, mm-hmm. when an announcement like that might be forthcoming based on the data that's being tracked about this particular new virus. As much as the back and forth on masks uh, has gone on, the same thing has happened now with hydroxychloroquine. Um, uh, uh, we're talking, by the way, with Deputy Secretary of HHS Eric Hargan this morning on AM 1420, The Answer. So, um, you know, President Trump three, three weeks ago, you know, touted this thing as being a potential game changer, did not declare it to be as such, but he said it could be, and we're very hopeful. He was, he was assaulted by the media for daring to say such a thing. Uh, in fact, one headline from CNN was Trump uh what was the word uh trump um Oh, I can't remember. I think it's illegitimate or some, some Trump. Uh, Trump uh, advances illegitimate, and I think don't think that's the word, but hope. Um, 
at a time of uh, at a time of of uh, of despair or something of that nature. In other words, they criticize the president for daring to be optimistic rather than joining them in their doom and gloom scenarios. Well, fast forward now three weeks. The FDA has approved the use of hydroxychloroquine in emergency cases to treat people who have contracted the uh, coronavirus. Um, and yet, some doctors are still saying no, they won't use it. My question to you is. Um, how serious are we or how close are we to recognizing that hydro- hydroxychloroquine combined with the z is the most effective way and should be prescribed on a wide basis in order to really uh, stop the symptoms or shorten the symptoms, rather, in those who have become infected? Yeah, well, you've seen that, the, as you just pointed out, the FDA has approved this as an emergency use authorization for, for these for these to be used. We have anecdotal but real data from Italy and France that show that it has been used successfully. These aren't clinical trials. These are reports of people who have used it. We've, we've got reports internally to the United States of where it's been used, particularly in conjunction with zinc, ZPAC, uh, as, a, as an adjunct to the mm-hmm. chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine. So we've got, we have lots of anecdotal, not clinical, not scientific, but lots of anecdotal evidence on this. And remember, a drug can be used off-label by a physician and their patients. Uh, FDA does not prohibit these kinds of drugs. They are simply recognizing on their standards whether something is safe and effective. Obviously, these are outstanding. These are drugs that are already in use, and so certain determinations have been made as to their safeness and effectiveness for what they're already being used for. But plenty of drugs are used off-label. We can't and FDA is not going to be recommending these until they have clinical data that they that they can point to. But it is just as the president pointed out, we have lots of anecdotal evidence on this front, and that's really for uh, patients and their physicians uh, to be uh, to be determining uh, with each other. Mm-hmm. So you know we've we've got global surveys on physicians. We've got, as I say, anecdotal, very evocative evidence. Lots of patients uh, in these things where it has right. worked, but. For us to say, we have the standard clinical trials that FDA always does on drugs. We don't have that. But, again, you saw the president stood out on this. There were governors that prohibited it in their states. There were lots of people who attacked him uh, within a week or sometimes a day. Sometimes yeah. statements were coming out after the FDA had approved it. They still were on such autopilot to attack the president that they were still issuing statements against it after the FDA Approved it. Oh, it's Again, like breathing for them. You talk, you call it autopilot. I call it breathing. I mean, seriously, every breath they take is is, is something negative about Donald Trump in, in the mainstream media. Uh, let me move on because we're short on time here, and I'm sure you are too. But I want to go back to the models because um, um, about a month ago, Dr. Fauci wrote a piece for the New England Journal of Medicine and said this is probably going to be no worse than the flu in terms of mortality rate, in terms of number of people who are going to be affected. Now, of course, uh, three days ago, four days ago, whatever it was, the ch- he changed, and he and Dr. Burks announced that we're looking at worst case scenario: one to two and a half million people dying in the United States alone. Best case, even if we follow social distancing, is a hundred to two hundred forty thousand. And these are based on yeah. models. My question is: is how do we trust the accuracy of models that have not been tested as much as perhaps a vaccine for this would be tested uh, before it would be relied upon for public policy? Well, when you saw those models, you, you, and I, I would advocate anyone to take a look at, at how they walked through those models in great detail about what the assumptions were of those models to produce those numbers. So you have to take a look at that and to see 
what they're based on. In many cases, as we've said since the beginning, we're looking at, you know, the denominators, exactly how many people are being affected and where the tests are being taken. You have to look at that. They, they based it on particular uh, affected areas and the data that they had at that time. So I would say for those people who are interested in seeing what the basic assumptions were of the model and whether as we continue to progress on testing, as we pro- continue to progress on analysis of the patients that we've had, as more testing moves outside of the hotspots like the New York metro area and some of the other areas where testing has been concentrated, and again, private industry has come up magnificently in providing hundreds of thousands, now over a million tests for the United States. There's more to be done. Those tests have naturally been concentrated in the most affected areas. This means that we are looking at projections based on those numbers. So pay attention to the assumptions that are being mm-hmm. done here. Those are numbers that are, that, are, that are mathematically sound based on the assumptions in the model and based on the data that was being produced at that time. The same my, thing my. goes for Dr. Fauci's modeling from weeks ago when you saw the, when you saw the tests and the information that he had at that time. So pay attention to that. Um, I would say that's what we pay attention to here as we see the numbers change, as we see many, many more tests coming online and much more data coming in on exactly how this, how these numbers are. This this will be my last question. We've already blown through our break here. I'm going to get killed uh, from the uh, people in the corner offices for this, but I need to get one last question in. And I really appreciate you coming on and speaking so forthrightly about all of this. Uh, Eric Hargan, the Deputy HHS Secretary. Um, I'm looking at the uh, worldometers or worldometer, if you will, uh, the uh, upgoing or the ongoing totals of cases and deaths, et cetera, et cetera, that has been uh, chronicling around the world. And I'm looking at countries like Russia, and I'm looking at countries like India. They've got the second highest population, what, 1.3, 1.4 billion people in in uh, in India, uh, for example. They've got. 2,500 cases and 72 deaths. We have 245,000 cases and we're almost 6,000 deaths. Russia, as mentioned a moment ago, 4,100 cases, only 34 deaths. These are highly populated and they're a lot closer to China where this thing started than we are. Is HHS and is the task force and is the federal government looking at other countries that are successful in terms of limiting this the way that they have been? And, and I and I just have to ask, what are they doing that we're not? Well, uh, one thing that a lot of countries aren't doing is testing as much as we are. They don't have as much transparency into the spread of this disease because there just hasn't been, in many cases, as much testing done. There has not been as much surveillance done. There are going to be lots of retrospectives to be had as we, God willing, go on the downslope of this outbreak at some point to see exactly how much testing was done in these populations, how much per capita, how much, how many of these things actually happened. At some point, we'll be able to have a more accurate view of exactly what happened. Some ca- and sometimes, you know, you do more testing, you find more cases. That's, that's just the facts. We have access to more testing. We and some of our other countries, peer countries, have access to more testing. We do more testing. We find more cases. We do more analysis on these cases, and we are open about what we are finding. I'd say, I'd say, I wouldn't rush to any judgments right now on whose regimes and whose public health uh, activities have been more or less successful until we see exactly what happened in the wake of this, and that's going to require better testing, better surveillance a better global understanding about how how cases are being tested, how they're being surveilled, how they're being analyzed, 
and which deaths are being said this is due to COVID-19. Right. Or we didn't even know. We didn't even yeah, know. And, and when it comes to countries like China where this started, I wouldn't trust anything that they give us in terms of numbers at all because they have a vested interest in covering everything up as they did from the beginning and maybe even from Russia as well. But I, I, I did because there are a number of other countries that I would consider to be a little bit more reliable, a little bit more willing to share information with us that I think, you know, probably in the aftermath we'll have to look back at um, uh, to, to find out exactly what was done differently and what was done similarly and why the results were so divergent. Uh, but that's for for another conversation. Uh, I really, again, appreciate you coming on. Eric Hargan, he is the Deputy uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services. I wish you and we are all praying, not just for an end to this scourge, but for the wisdom of God to touch everybody on the on the uh, uh, coronavirus task force, everybody in government. We are counting on you guys to get this right and to find that balance between treating health and treating the economy because of the impact that will have on health as well. So I wish you all the very best. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Appreciate that very much. All right. We blew past a break. We don't normally do that. We're going to have to catch up here. So take a little breather. Listen to the news. Listen to a few important messages. And we'll come back and take calls on AM 1420 The Answer. For your indulgence of the extended break there, uh, but we had a long extended interview with the uh, Deputy Secretary of HHS. <clears throat> I got as many of your questions in as I could. Obviously, I had some follow-ups of my own, but I asked questions from callers and messengers about masks, about uh, hydroxychloroquine, about the spread models, about the uh, casualties of economic collapse, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. but obviously, unless I have them on for a few hours, I can't ask everything, but... Um, uh, I found some of the answers to be extraordinarily important. And um, I do truly believe that President Trump, and again, he's not speaking for the president, but he is the deputy secretary of a cabinet-level position, uh, of a cabinet uh, department of uh, Health and Human Services. And uh, so he can't speak for the president, but he can speak as to the administration's policies. And I truly believe that President Trump wants to get us back to work sooner than later. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place. The medical professionals upon whom he is pledged to rely are telling him all of the worst-case scenarios that the models predict and best-case scenarios that the models predict. And he's hearing a couple hundred thousand dead Americans as a best-case scenario. If he... If he doesn't follow those doctors' advice and puts people back to work and a couple hundred thousand people die or more, it's going to be all on him forever. Not just for re-election in November, but in history. History will record that the American president ignored the advice of medical professionals and put people back in harm's way, and hundreds of thousands of people died as a result of that decision. That's how history will record it. And President Trump doesn't want that history. More importantly, President Trump doesn't want dead Americans for the right reasons of, of, of saving lives. So that's the rock on one side. And then the hard place on the other side, and he's caught in between, is how many dead Americans are going to, be, uh, are going to result from a collapsed economy? Business is gone forever. Jobs gone. Savings gone. 
Retirement plans gone. Children's college funds gone. A banking collapse. The stock market collapse. Millions of Americans, a 30 to 35% unemployment rate. One-third of all employable Americans are out of work. That's the hard place. I wouldn't want to be Donald Trump. I wouldn't want to be anybody who's got to establish the policy that's supposed to walk that high wire. If you lean to the right, you you fall. If you lean to the left, you fall. And I don't mean that ideologically. I mean, you know, in the metaphor of a high wire. He's got to try to stay on that high wire like the uh, flying Walenda guy and, and knowing that if the wind blows a little bit too much this way or that way, he's done. Now, this is why we vote to elect people. But I will tell you this. I don't care if Barack Obama was in charge right now. If, if, if Hillary Clinton, thank God she's not, but if she was in charge right now, I would be praying for her or him or whomever to make the right decision. Because it seems like he's damned, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. I wouldn't want that job. The last thing that I would do would be to make the job harder on somebody who has it. I wouldn't be sitting here throwing stones at Hillary or Barack or Bill Clinton or anybody else. I would be saying, please get it right. And I think that the left, being quite frankly as hateful as they are of Donald Trump, and in many ways hateful of this country, they take the exact opposite approach. They're going to throw as many stones as they can at Donald Trump while he's walking that high wire, hoping to knock him off. Because power and naked ambition are more important to them than anything else. Tony is in South Euclid. Tony, you are on AM 1420. The answer. Go ahead. Yes, thanks for taking my call, Bob. Um, Yeah, I agree with you. You're absolutely 100% on one of your Sunday morning programs or Sunday afternoon programs. I use the same analogy. Um, between a rock and a hard place with Mr. Trump. This, you know, I, I was watching the, the news and 73%, they said 73% of the survivor, survivors from this uh, virus are not hospitalized. Let's hear some percentages with numbers. You can't really correlate anything unless you have some percentages. And, uh, you know, the, the lack of ventilators, I think this is the problem with uh, the hospitals. I think that's why we're in this situation. Um, that we have to quarantine everyone is because they didn't do their their duty for all these years, and they're the ones that are in the 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 problem situation. The health department hasn't done their job. I've all before made many calls of lack of responsibility of these uh, businesses that are not using safe practices. And remember, Mr. Obama. Um, before he called the national emergency for the swine flu in 2010, 2009, um, there were 10,000 people that died before he called it national emergency in the United States. Yeah. So we can put this all into perspective. You know, 300 percent. Okay. Okay. I, I know. And, I know the stats. I know the stats, Tony. I need you to get your large point here. I got a lot of callers. Yeah. Just. Just the last point here. 300 percent. Uh, is went up in suicide calls uh, to the hotline, hotline suicide line. This is all I want to make. I just want to make these points and bullets because and 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 agree with you one hundred percent. And we just need to 
to reflect on this and understand really what's going on. You're doing a great job, Bob. Thank you, my friend. God bless you, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that support. Listen, you're right, and I talked about this in the first hour. Um, there are models, there are studies that have been done comparing suicide rates to e- times of economic uh, uh, prosperity and economic calamity in this country. And yes, when we fall into economic calamity and chaos and we have crashes and depressions or serious deep re- recessions, yes, the uh, suicide rates go through the roof. And that's why I wanted Mike uh, DeWine to know, Governor DeWine, and I just put it on Facebook, not that I tried to call his office, but 40,000, to remind him of what I'm sure he knows, 40,000 people killed themselves during the Great Depression. What's the lesson? Don't create another Great Depression. Now, I know, again, same thing Mike DeWine, I I said about Donald Trump, I'll say about Mike DeWine and all the other governors. There's a high wire act here, you got to walk. And I get it, and I understand. You've got to try to do what you can to save the lives of potentially uh, infected people, but you also have to try to save the lives of everybody else. And we cannot sacrifice 10 and a half, 11 million Ohioans uh, and their livelihoods for, uh, relatively speaking, again, I know one death is one death too many, but relatively speaking, a few number of people who are going to perish because of this. That's the balancing act that he is forced and they are all forced to do. I want him to know that, yes, we support the efforts to save lives, but we cannot you know, close our eyes uh, to the reality of other deaths that are going to come because of the response, not the virus. Uh, let's go to uh, who's next? Gary in Berea. Oh, Gary. Oh, Gary. Yeah, I saw the Akron Beacon Journal article. Gary, go. Good morning. Go ahead, sir. Well, within you, you saw it. That's great. But uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know what else to tell you other than the fact that I'm glad that you saw it. And uh, you know. This not only did I see it, Gary, not only did I see it, we're acting upon it. We're already reaching out to try to get uh, Gary, uh, uh, what was his name, uh, um, Broberg, I think it was, uh, from well, that's the article. That's, oh, well, you're me. Gary. Oh, yeah. whoa, whoa. I, no, I didn't realize that you were the actual person in the, who was the subject of yeah. the article. Yeah. Oh, you're that's killing me. me, man. You're killing me. Why didn't, yeah. you, why didn't you tell yeah. us that ahead of time? I thought you were just oh. alerting us to something that was coming that you knew about. I didn't know you no, were the subject no, of the that's article. Me. Yeah, that's wow. Me. Holy so. goodness sakes. Well, we yeah. want to get you on. We want to get you on for an extended segment, not as a caller, but as an interview guest on, on Monday's program if you're available. So just give the, I will be. give the 60 second synopsis version of it right now so people know what in the heck you and I are talking about. Okay. Well, uh, the, the idea is to um, train a, uh, or Im- imprint uh, enough scent detection dogs that you can uh, identify and uh, test every individual in the state of Ohio for coronavirus. And the whole process basically takes one minute. doesn't have to go to a lab or anything like that. The dog will tell you in one minute. And uh, you know, we, we, I estimated, we, I took a... It went out and did a little feeler. There's uh, this says it calls for 880 dogs, Bob. But there's probably 1,400 do- bona fide scent detection dogs that could be imprinted on the virus. And uh, again, if you had this state, is that in the state, the only- Gary? For 1,400 yeah. dogs in the state or nationally? Yeah, oh yeah, in the state, in the state, okay. the state of Ohio. All you got to do is imprint them with the with the actual virus uh, odor. And uh, set up your stations and have people uh, drive in. And actually, for like the younger kids, you know, who who don't want to come in, there's no incentive for them. Hey, you hand them a $500 gift card if we, in fact, find out that they have the coronavirus. So we have some incentive for them to come in. Yeah, Uh, yeah. 
but anyways, I'm like, uh, you know. Well, here, here's what I'm going to do, Gary, just so you know, and I really appreciate you calling, and I'm so glad I cleared that up. I thought you were calling to tell us about somebody else, and it was you who's the subject of the article. I'm going to tweet and Facebook post the article from the Akron Beacon Journal that features your story and about the scent, uh, you know, and, and coronavirus detecting dogs and how this might be the best, most accurate and fastest test in the world, uh, by using the dogs. I'm going to tweet it, Facebook it so people see it over the weekend, and then we'll have a much more extensive conversation about it on Monday. Sound good? Bob, that's great because that's, that's what this thing needs is an advocate like yourself who really understands what it's all about and doesn't poo-poo it, I think. Well, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. What, but, 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 right. I, but I believe that you do. From what I skimmed of the yeah. article during the last news break, I think you're onto something here, so I want to learn more about it. I won't profess to understand it, but I will profess to being interested enough to learn about it and see if this is something we can get people behind. Okay, well, thank right. you, Bob. God bless you. God bless you. And thank you, Gary. I appreciate it. That That's Gary. So apparently that's Gary Broberg. I did not know. He's the subject of the article uh, that we're, excuse me, we're talking about in the Akron Beacon Journal this morning. Apologies for that. Gary uh, apparently has worked with FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency Task Force, and he trains scent-detecting dogs and has used them, obviously, as cadaver dogs to locate dead bodies in Northeast Ohio and, uh, and after tragedies, of, including... Uh, uh, the Oklahoma City bombing and the 1994 U.S. air crash near Pittsburgh that killed 132 people. He takes these trained dogs out, and uh, as long as you teach them what the scent is, expose them to the scent, and then they train them to, to look for that scent, um, they can smell the disease on people. It has been done in, in a number of cases. I'm fascinated by it. And, again, I, I, I won't profess to know much more than what I just said, but I will uh, talk to Gary about that on Monday's program at 1010. We're going to have him on the air for a much more extended interview about that. Okay, uh, thank you to Gary. Let's go next to Rudy, uh, who is in Avon Lake on AM 1420, The Answer. Hi, Rudy, go ahead. Hi, Bob. Uh, Rudy Breglia. I'm a citizen advocate for seatbelts and school buses. I have no commercial interest. I'm trying to prevent student injuries and death uh, because they don't have seatbelts in accidents or sudden stops. Uh, It only costs about three cents a student a day or five dollars a student a year to have seatbelts when spread out over the lifetime of a bus. Uh, What I'm trying to do is get school districts to conduct seatbelt trials where they would equip one uh, school bus with seatbelts. And I'm talking about lap shoulder belts. And uh, I'm willing to help fund the uh, seatbelts in the first new school bus, or at least try to uh, uh, obtain funds for the school district to use to uh, conduct a trial. And I'm just wondering why school districts are so reluctant. I've talked to 37, uh, given them presentations, and they're reluctant to take uh, uh, my request to conduct a trial. Do you have any answers for me, Bob? No, because I've I've never talked to a school district about this, but I have read some things where you've been quoted, though, Rudy, and and I appreciate you bringing this up, and thank you for your phone call. Um, I have read it, and I have been, you know, unable to understand the 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 reluctance, other than from a dollars and cents standpoint. Now, I could be totally wrong. 
Some have tried to argue that uh, seatbelts on school buses are more dangerous than they are a, a, a safety assistance uh, because kids who are trapped in an overturned school bus and can't get out of that, et cetera, et cetera, could be in more danger. Those are arguments that I've heard, but I'm no expert on it. But I've read some things and I've heard some things, and I wish I could give you better answers. But I do salute you for your efforts in trying to assist in whatever way that you can with that. Thank you so much for the call. Uh, let me get in uh, uh, before we take our break here. John, John, you are on AM 1420, The Answer. Go ahead, sir. Thank you, Bob. Just like Governor Devine, you came through today, the interview with the HHS. Uh, it's not anecdotal. I've used that medicine at least five times in the last 50 years. Travel overseas. Malaria is a known drug like aspirin, but never been used specifically for corona. It's almost like a Manhattan Project now. Worldwide, everybody's trying the best they can to come up with. FDA has accelerated the approval. And the main thing is people have to cooperate. We can easily criticize government or politicians right now we have to cooperate for example the labs are behind at least half the reports for the major labs are behind i keep track of it i'm in the pharmaceutical field i'm not a doctor but the main thing is small business today they're supposed to be applying for loans i'll give you a number you call they're just like in the labs they're skeleton crew and Money will not be coming in the three weeks' time, even though Munition is doing the best he can. SBA is choking. And there are a lot of people in the lowest income bracket, earned income tax credit, Milton Friedman's negative income tax people. They don't file taxes. So they will be. They're the ones who need the most. They're the ones that they paid a lending circle. So let's not criticize, throw the stone in the glass building. I think we should cooperate, keep the distance. Six feet or more, whatever you even said, the latest price, right. you can't even stand next to somebody talking. But we have to cooperate. Small business, I just called, I, I don't want to mention the bank's name, tested before I talked to Marcy. They are making appointments, even J.P. Morgan, all the major banks are not going to be ready to give any loan, but they call paychecks protection. It's almost like a catalyst. Without that, small business will die. It'll be a depression. I'm a student of American history. And it's that's that we are jumping and criticizing everything. Governors have done a beautiful job. I'm not talking about Trump or Obama. It doesn't matter. The main thing is this is almost like a Manhattan Project. We will come through American ingenuity and common sense. We can prevail it as long as people cooperate. And well, that's and I I appreciate that so much, John. I appreciate your phone call. And you're right, there, and, and there has to be cooperation, but I think it cannot be coercion. And I think that's the difference. We have to cooperate uh, with some of the uh, suggestions, but I don't think co- coercing people and uh, depriving them of their First Amendment rights, I think, is the way to do that, particularly to, do, to uh, uh, deprive them of their opportunity to make a living and to provide for their families, and that's a very dangerous thing. John, thank you so much. 1053, final segment coming. short segment here to wrap it up for the day and wrap it up for the week. I hope you enjoyed the conversations we have with Tom Homan today, the former director of ICE, as well as the deputy secretary of HHS. And I know you enjoyed listening to Steve Moore earlier this week. And I'm going to close today with Steve Moore. I wish Steve Moore was appearing with President Trump at the daily briefings and with Vice President Pence. That way you could hear from Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci and the medical experts on the threat of the coronavirus. And then you could also listen to somebody talking about the threats against our economy and the impact it could have on lives and livelihoods as well. This is what former Trump advisor Steve Moore says. 
And once again, we got to go this way. The idea of going anywhere past April 30th, another month of shutdown, will be, in my opinion, catastrophic for our economy. You're talking about millions of business failures. You're talking about an unemployment rate of 20, 25%. You know, we were at 3.5% a month ago. You're talking about as many as 30, 40 million Americans unemployed. We've never seen anything like this before in our country. So we have to really start thinking about, you know, the risks uh, and the benefits of getting our economy reopened. We have to be extremely attentive to all the best medical information. But I'm here to tell you, I mean, if we go much past April 30th, uh, we're not going to have a much of an economy to reopen when this is done. So I'm obviously I'm starting to take very prudent measures to starting getting um, areas of the country reopened and industries that we are so dependent on reopen because the carnage that we're talking about will be so significant it will take you know two three years to recover from it's a high wire act we're asking our leaders to walk there's no question about it and we pray that they make the right decisions we'll talk to you monday bye-bye